All right, like we always say, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to James chapter 5, and today we come to the close of James uh, as a book and as a letter here on Sunday morning. So let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 5, and at the end today I'll be letting you know where we're going next. So let's take a minute to read through the text, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a uh, man with a nature like ours. And he prayed and earnestly, earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The title of my message this morning is In Closing. And one of the certainties in life is that when a pastor comes to the point of the sermon or the message and says, now in closing, you probably got a good half hour to go. Okay? James is the same way, and he seems to be throwing a lot at us here in these few verses. As we begin looking at these verses, we must look at these verses in three contexts. Any proper Bible study will always take context into consideration before making an interpretation, and from that interpretation, drawing an application. So context is key. Now, Concerning context, the Bible is a unique book. It is the inspired Word of God. And God, in His wisdom, decided not to give us just one book written by one person, but 66 books written over a, about 1,000 years, 1,200 years. And as a result, this is the way that He decided to reveal Himself and doctrine, teaching to us. So we must take that into consideration when we take into consideration the context of any verse. One of the teachers that I've listened to once said that every cult in America started by taking one Bible verse out of context. I thought that was an interesting statement that he made. There are three contexts that we must be aware of if we are properly going to interpret and therefore apply. Now that's key to our conversation. We must read the verse, interpret the verse, and apply the verse. Okay, three steps. 
The reading comes clear. The interpretation, before we can do so properly, must take in consideration these three contexts. Okay, I know I'm being a little long-winded on this, but I think it's important as we get into these verses to establish some principles, some precedents before we do. The first context that we must take into consideration is the context of the immediate paragraph that that verse is found in. What did the writer say before? And what did the writer say afterwards? Makes sense, right? The second context is the verse within the entirety of the letter or book that contains it. How does this verse not only work in the immediate context, but the before and after within the paragraph, but how does this verse work within the context of the entire letter? In our case, it would be the entire book of James. Now, it would be easy to stop there, but that's not where God stopped. We then have to move to the third context. And the third context is how does that one verse work inside the totality of the 66 books of the Bible, okay? Knowing that God's word does not contradict itself. And these three contexts are key in the discovery of biblical doctrine, teaching. We have 27 books in the New Testament, and in these 27 books, New Testament theology under the New Covenant is established, okay? Look at doctrine not as a single dimensional object, but see doctrine as a multiple dimensional object. You know, for example, if I were to take this water bottle... Let me make sure it's closed before I turn it upside down, <laughs> or we would all be baptized. If I were to show it to you just this way, it would appear to you, if you saw it one-dimensionally, that this is just a circle. But if I turn it, you see that there are multiple dimensions to it, and it is therefore uh, vastly superior than a single circle. Too often, when we look at Scripture... When we are considering a doctrine, a teaching of the New Testament, we take one verse, we run with the verse in our limited interpretation because we're not taking it in the totality of the New Testament. For example, James says one dimension of the doctrine, but Paul may add another dimension. John may add another dimension, and eventually you get what is known as a systematic view of a doctrine. And of course, this is where we get the idea of systematic theology. Does that make sense? So at looking at these verses in the latter portion of James, we must take them in the three contexts that we just discussed to properly understand them. And as we go, I think you're going to see why that is necessary. From the very beginning, James wanted to describe what a mature believer looks like. A mature believer in Jesus Christ. Today, we often believe that maturity is simply based on head knowledge. Is that the truth? 
We know that personal maturity is certainly not based on head knowledge alone. So then why would we consider Christian maturity simply based on the amount of head knowledge that a person has? My dad used to like to affectionately say he knew a lot of very intelligent people who couldn't cross the street. Maturity cannot simply be based on head knowledge alone, though I believe knowledge is a component of maturity. But for certain, the New Testament emphasizes that maturity is certainly displayed in the characteristic of prayer. I have never met a mature Christian who doesn't have a dynamic prayer life. I'm just going to be honest with you. They go hand in hand. And appealing to that, encouraging prayer not to be the last option, but always the first choice, the first go-to, the maturity of a person in their Christian faith can often be observed by their prayer life. Now, when I talk about a prayer life, I'm not talking necessarily about someone praying in a community of believers, raising their hands to God, and of course, going into the official language of the Bible, the King James Version. Thou, O Lord, thou art God. Oh, that man's prayer life is just amazing. Do you know, I've often heard people pray and not say anything. I've heard people pray and never get to the point of asking God anything. The prayer lives of individual mature Christians that I have observed closely and from a distance are very, very uh, gentle. But you know they're very dynamic. And when you're in the presence of those people and you're praying, and you, you realize, oh, they, are, they just have an incredible intimacy in their prayer. I often don't want to pray next because they, they've already just brought me into the presence of God through their prayer. So that's a thought that James has here. Now, why do I say that? Because James had a nickname. I don't know if you knew that. This was his nickname on Facebook and Twitter. Hashtag Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. That was his nickname, Camel Knees. Why? Well, it was actually an affectionate term. James prayed so much that his knees looked like the knees of camels, historians tell us. He was a man of prayer. So he immediately moves to the end of his letter in an exhortation, encouraging people to pray in various circumstances. And the first of those circumstances is the circumstance of suffering. Now, speaking of the subject of suffering as a Christian, recently a pastor encouraged his congregation to rediscover what he calls the New Testament theology of suffering, understanding the role of suffering in the life of a Christian. I thought this was brilliant because I think that we have forgotten that throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, Christianity and suffering have gone hand in hand, haven't they? They've gone hand in hand. We have been exempt from much of that suffering. We haven't experienced that type of suffering, though we fully are aware that it's going on around the world even to this day. I just read an article two weeks ago about a Christian man in India 
This Christian man was burned alive for his Christian faith. But that wasn't the end of the story. The story then began to become very troubling, if that wasn't troubling enough, because the person who light lit the fire to burn him was a member of his family. The suffering of Christians is happening all over the world. The persecution of Christians in China is at an all-time high. And we have been exempt here in America, and I'm thankful for that. But the doctrine of suffering, the theology of suffering, is prominent in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, if I were to sum it up for you, saw suffering as a tool of refinement in the hand of God. They saw suffering as an instrument in which God would use in the life of the believer to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that when you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse that we all know, for all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, right? All know that verse. Do we read a little bit uh, before and after to discover that Paul then goes, says, we're given up as sheep unto a slaughter all day long. The context is in the context of suffering. Everything that he experienced in the context of suffering, he saw as good, conforming him into the image of Jesus Christ. Suffering and Christianity have gone hand in hand throughout all of history. So James says to those recipients of his letter, that when you find yourself in suffering, what to do? And he says it very clearly. Let him pray. That should be our go-to. The word suffering there can also be translated in the English, a time of trouble, a time of difficulty and of distress, a time where our circumstances have overwhelmed us and have become harmful to us. James says, pray. Now, why does he say that? The first thing that we need to understand, and I think I need to say this, is James is not being flippant here. This isn't just some Christian cliche, well, if they're suffering, just tell them to pray. See, it was very real to James. James was doing it himself. James cultivated an intimate and personal relationship with Christ, and in his time of trouble, his go-to was prayer. That's where it was, prayer. And it's interesting to me because so much of the book of James is drawn directly from the Gospels. And Jesus, in his most tormented moment, the night before the crucifixion, in John chapter 17, what did Jesus do? He prayed. And in that prayer, three things happened. Number one, he once again was reminded of perspective. He saw his eternal, I'm sorry, he saw his temporal moment in the context of eternity. Yes, this moment of suffering, pain, death was going to uh, result in the redemption of the world. So he gained his perspective once again. Number two, his purpose. He realized this is why he had come into this world. And this purpose then drew his focus. 
This was his moment. This was his hour that he talked about. And knew that he must fulfill the will of his Father. And lastly, it appears that that time of prayer gave him the power to be able to go through the next moment. See, if Jesus simply looked at the temporal situation, it would have been easy for us to understand if he ran, right? But he kept eternity in mind and allowed himself to go to the cross because he knew three days later, he would release not only he would be released from the pangs of death, but he also would be capable then of releasing others from the pangs of death. Prayer in our time of suffering. Then he goes on, if any are cheerful, let them sing psalms. Now, if you don't know this, the psalms are, of course, songs. There's 150 of them. And if you read through the Psalms, you will find a Psalm eventually that speaks directly to you concerning what you're going through at the moment. So when you're in trouble or cheerful and you're looking for a Psalm, read all 150 and I guarantee you're going to find one. It should take you about an hour to do so. But cheer and praise God for the blessings that we have. Now, in the immediate context, we understand that James is trying to encourage patience within the recipients of his letter. And he says prayer and the praising of God in Psalms will contribute to that patience, will contribute to that endurance and perseverance that is needed. And then he continues in verse 14, and this is where we have to be careful that we are not misapplying what James is saying. Now, is anyone among you sick? Well, of course, sick people today, sick people back then. Sickness, again, is one of the all things that can work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When an individual is sick, let us remember that James is writing to Jewish people scattered abroad. James 1.1 tells us very clearly that he's writing to Christians who were previously Jewish. Of the 12 tribes scattered abroad. If you go back to the Gospels, you realize that when someone was sick, there was an assumption made. And Jesus addressed this assumption over and over again. The assumption was, who has sinned? That individual or their father, mother, whoever. Somebody must have sinned to bring about this calamity, to bring about this issue, this sickness, etc. This was in the Jewish mindset. One of the things we have to remember is that the Jewish people looked at the new covenant differently than the Gentiles did. Not that the covenant was any different. They just looked at it differently. The Jewish people looked at it as the progression from the old to the new. The Jewish people took their Jewish ideas into the new covenant. Does that make sense? When you see that in the scripture, all of a sudden passages like this and others become very much alive. And James, being one of the earliest books of the New Testament, is allowing the Jewish people to discover the new covenant. 
They were very uh, uh, familiar with the Mosaic Covenant, right? Taught a child and went to various schools and synagogues and so forth. But now this new covenant was completely different. And they were getting used to it. How many times did the disciples with Jesus have to ask him alone and privately? I love that teaching, Jesus. That was absolutely amazing. What did you mean by it? It was clear. They were trying to fit it all together. Jesus often had to cut through the minutiae of the tradition of the religious leaders. And he does so in the Sermon of the Mount beautifully. You've heard this, but I say this. Showing the superiority and often the vast uh, delinquency of the religious leaders in not obtaining the full understanding of what God had said. You haven't committed adultery? Great. But I say to you, anyone who's lust after a woman has already committed adultery in, in their heart. Whoa. Standard just changed, right? It wasn't enough just to abstain. It was also to deal with the thought and the mind and the heart of the individual. So Jewish people thought a little differently concerning the new covenant. Gentiles had to have explanation. So that's why it's imperative that we look at James in also the context of Paul and John, and find out what they added to the discussion. Does that make sense? It's taking the totality of the New Testament to discover New Testament doctrine. So is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what did the oil represent? Well, first, it is administered by the elders. These were appointed authorities in the new church. The sick were to call for the elders. The elders would then pray over that individual and anoint them with oil. And there are two thoughts that we can bring into this conversation. Number one, that the oil was simply used as a medicinal purpose. Oil was often used in that culture as a medicine. You know, people think essential oils just started. They were in the time of Jesus. When he went into the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the outer court of the temple, there was an essentials oils booth there. <laughs> but oil was used in a large degree as medicine. When Herod the Great became sick. They bathed him, historians tell us, in a bath of oil in hopes that, they would, that he would get better. There was medicinal value to oil at that time. Was that the purpose of the anointing of the oil? Well, it's possible. For in Matthew 25, 3 and 4, this oil was used, the same word in Greek, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels and their lamps. In Luke 10, 34, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So many commentators stop right there and say, oh, it was simply for medicinal purposes. Okay, 
But let's think again who the recipients of this letter was. Certainly, they would see a medicinal value in the oil. But let's not dismiss the Old Testament. They also saw the anointing of oil as one being anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's the word anointing in the Old Testament. That anointing was always demonstrated by the anointing of the individual with oil. And so I believe that since the whole capacity and relationship with the Spirit was new under this new covenant, that they demonstrated the presence of the Spirit in this way to show and to always affirm that it was not them by which the healing was occurring, but by the Holy Spirit Himself. And John and Peter in the book of Acts made this abundantly clear, don't look at us, it is Christ and facilitating the power and ability that Christ had in us is the Spirit of God today. So I don't want to reduce this anointing of oil just simply, oh, they put it in their diffuser in their bedroom, and they simply were healed in this way. But let us understand that the early church, demonstrated in the book of Acts clearly, saw the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. Do we all agree with that? God made us, God can fix us, right? As Pastor Chuck Smith said one time in a conference, and I, I, I was drinking some water at the time, and I think it came out my nose. I started laughing so hard. He said, well, when prayer doesn't work, he had this deep voice, then take a pill, you know. And he actually took a pill up there because he had a cold. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is capable of healing today. We believe that the gift of healing is still active in the church today. We are continuationists. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are continuing today. As Peter said, I'm sorry, Paul said, decently and in order for the edification of the entire church. Okay, and, for, and I hope I don't have to say this, the glorification of God. So now that we've established that, let us continue into verse 15. And the prayer of faith, which save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and he, uh, and, I'm sorry, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now it gets a little bit trickier. What does he mean by this? Well, first and foremost, we know that recipients of this healing receive this healing by faith. Now, before we look at each other and saying, well, don't you have enough faith to be healed? Do you understand that if you read Paul clearly in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you will discover that the gift immediately following healing is the gift of faith. This faith is a gift as well as the healing itself. So often we try to believe that our limited faith hinders God, and it does to a purpose and to a degree. But God can anoint someone, can give the gift of faith to receive the healing when that healing is according to His will, which we'll get to in just a minute. So them in the early stages of the church, 
getting to understand all of this. It's all new to them, right? They're learning as they go. The revelation is being given. James is just one of 27 books of the New Testament. And so James then puts it forward and saying, look, this healing is by faith. Salvation is by faith. Of course that would make sense and would be consistent with biblical New Testament teaching. Now we come to the the word save. Like any other English word, we must remember that these words represent Greek words, okay? And just because the word saved is used in many different places, it doesn't always represent the same Greek word behind it. When we think of saved, in most cases, we immediately go to salvation. We immediately go to soteriology, the theology of uh, salvation. But that's not what it always means. In fact, here very clearly, this word means something completely different. The word is sose in the Greek, S-O-S-E-I, and it means this. To cause someone to become well again after having been sick. To heal, to cure, to make well. That's what the word means. The word save in the New Testament also is is defined by the idea of deliverance. Delivering someone from that sickness. Bringing them through and out of that sickness. Okay? It is clear here that James is talking about healing not salvation. And the Lord will raise him up. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And the Lord raised them up. Well, you think of the resurrection initially, but go beyond that and you realize that he said it first when it came to individuals who were sick and on their bed. Stand up, take up your bed and walk, right? I believe that everything written here is not soteriology. It is talking about the healing of the individual that Jesus will raise him up. Now, this is where he adds that other dimension to it. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, the Jewish mindset believed that sin in the life of the individual and or sin, I'm sorry, sickness in the life of the individual and or sickness in the family was a result of hidden sin within the life of that individual. Jesus demonstrated that. Now, it's interesting, Paul said something very similar when it came to the subject of communion. The Corinthians were taking communion improperly. They were taking communion in insincerity and in sin. And as a result of them doing so, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Because they entered into communion with unrepented sin, and because of the hypocrisy and therefore, they suffered weakness, sickness, and some even died. Now, I bet you you won't take communion again the same way going forward, will you? But it was serious in the early church. The early church, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so significant 
that when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to God, they were struck dead in the mist. Talk about a worship service. Do you think people left with the fear of God after that? I know I would be like, oh man, I'm not sure I'm going to go back to that church, right? That's a powerful moment. Sin is serious in the eyes of God. The Jewish individuals believed that there was a connection between sin and sickness. Now, notice that James writes, if he has committed sin. He's indicating that not all sickness is a result of sin. But he says there's a possibility that it may be. And if it is, they should confess it. Now, where did they get that idea from? Well, we ourselves know that psychologists here in, uh, and psychiatrists here in America are seeing the emotional impact upon the physical body. We're seeing that emotions have an impact upon the physiology of the individual. For example, one of those emotions is the thought of guilt. As one wrote, he said, guilt is described as a self-conscious emotion that involves negative evaluations of, its, of the self, feelings of distress and feelings of failure. Some of the signs that you might be coping with is, are from a guilty complex. Notice anxiety, crying, insomnia, muscle tension, preoccupation with past mistakes, regret, an upset stomach, worry. Now, this is the world saying, look, it's obvious that guilt can cause such a thing in a person. But do you know we had this revelation years and years before that? And you know who told us directly about this relationship between emotion and physical? It was none other than King David himself. King David in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Notice with me. He begins by saying, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Let me give you a little backstory. He's writing about his sin with Bathsheba and his attempt to try to hide that sin and what the hiding of that sin caused within him. He begins by saying, Blessed, happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We all say amen to that. And whose spirit there is no deceit. He's talking about himself here. When I kept silent, when I tried to hide that sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I was messed up. I was dry inside. My bones ached. I was up all night, the groaning all day long. There was a direct physiological impact to the hiding of his sin and the guilt that it carried And his only remedy for that was repentance. We have to remember that God loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And therefore, 
If we attempt to hide sin before the Lord, it will fester and it will eventually play itself out in affecting how we physically think and feel. But again, let me remind us that not all sickness is a result of sin. So it would be improper for us to immediately conclude because someone has a sickness that they have done something wrong. Isn't it amazing that over the last two years, during the pandemic, we were conditioned to believe that if anyone got COVID, they have been irresponsible, they were uh, unwilling to do what was mandated, it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. How did all that play out? We can't assume that. If someone's diagnosed with cancer, we can't assume that they have sinned. If someone's diagnosed with whatever, we cannot immediately assume that it is a direct result of sin. But we understand why James wrote this, don't we? We understand him. We understand his culture. We understand his background. We understand his recipients. And this would make sense to them. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What he is saying here is that if you have wronged someone, go to them and confess it. And in that confession, you possibly would be alleviated uh, of the sickness or the weight of the sickness that you're experiencing. Now, let us understand something. We have the blessing of knowing physiology much better than they did back then. For example, when people like to tell me about their liberty to drink, they often use the verse, and, and I don't disagree with their liberty to have a drink, I, I don't disagree with that, but they'll use a verse such as this, but even Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. Oh my gosh. I don't know about you, but I, I would get a tummy ache after drinking wine, personally. But what did he mean by that? They used wine as in medicinal purposes. Much of the water that they got was perfectly purified through a purifying center there in Jerusalem. Right or wrong? If you took their water under a microscope, you would never drink it. It was riddled with bacteria that they were unaware of. People would drink that, and if the bacteria was too significant, it would cause an upset stomach. Therefore, they took wine that contained a little bit of alcohol to kill that bacteria and therefore healing the stomach. Now, some write that Timothy's stomach problems were a result of his fear. I think that's an interesting thing if you read the context of the letter. We won't get into that today. But, therefore, can I use that as a justification, or I like the other one, but Jesus turned water into wine. Oh, 
yeah, Jesus ran out, you know, they ran out of wine, and so Jesus created, and they went into the pantry, and there were all these boxes of wine, you know, the good stuff, with the little spigots on the side, you know. Guys, we have to read things in the clarity and the understanding of the culture that it was written within. And so, I say this because he is basically instructing them to confess their sins to one another, to get the weight off of their conscience that may be complicating their physiology, possibly, and also, in the wake of that, creating unity amongst them. Now, one thing that I want to address here at this point, and that is this. When we read this, I have been told by well-meaning individuals that anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Does James guarantee healing by doing this? Is that what he is saying? Or is there another dimension of the conversation that must be included to understand this properly? And I would agree with the latter. I don't believe this is a blanket promise that he will automatically heal everybody. I believe healing is possible, but there's a component that James does not write here that must be taken into the consideration, and that is the will of God. Paul the Apostle makes it abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit exercises the gifts according to His will. But then I had an individual say, but it doesn't say that here. And I just listened because... No, no, you anoint them with oil and it will happen and it's going to occur and so forth. I'm, I'm all for healing. I'm all for anointing with oil. I'll do it. Not a problem. But let's be understand that it has to be done in the context of God's will in every single case. Well, how do you know that? Because he doesn't include it here. And this is where the second context comes into play. Is there a verse in James that talks about the necessity of the will of God? And the answer is yes. James introducing this concept to his recipients says very clearly in verse 15 of chapter 4 that all that we do must be say with, said within the context, if the Lord, what? Wills. In proper interpretation, every verse that talks about healing doesn't need the inclusion of by the will of God. If it says it earlier in the letter or other places in the Bible, it must be taken into consideration on the impact of the application, doesn't it? Because that's the way God's word works. He gave us 66 books to determine true biblical teaching. And he did so for a reason. It was brilliant. And it's the elimination of the concept of collusion. If one person wrote it, then you could argue, oh, it's simply the whims of an individual, right? 
if a certain select group of people wrote it, maybe a handful of the special people, the special group, the special group, then you could say they got together and collusion occurred, but 66 books written over so many years eliminates that. And therefore, when it comes to the healing of the individual, it must be according to the will of God. And we cannot, cannot separate those two things. Now, the first question I believe that they would have is, well, prayer. What about prayer? How significant is prayer? Again, we started with prayer. Now we end with prayer. Notice what he says here. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man, an individual in right standing with God, that would be in the new covenant through Christ, avails much, meaning prevails much. It has much power. And then he brings, notice the example that he uses, Elijah Again, Jewish people would be fully aware of 1 Kings 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a person just like us, James is saying. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Go home tonight. Read 1 Kings 17 and 18 for the backstory. It is an awesome account. But notice the caveat that James connects to Elijah. He was a man with a nature just like us. But he was a prophet. He was a man with a nature just like us. But Paul, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's a man with a nature just like us. Though he had the role that he had, Paul said it himself, for I am chief sinner amongst us all. The effective working of prayer, fervent prayer. On the 28th, we're going to come together and pray because we believe prayer is extremely powerful. We have the privilege as Christians to go before the throne room of God and make our needs known. We can petition the God of heaven to intercede on our behalf. And as the great preacher Robert Law once said, prayer is not petitioning God to obtain our will in heaven. Prayer is to petition God that he may fulfill his will here on earth. Paul said it this way in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I think this verse is very uh, important to us today. He says, Therefore I exhort you first of all that supplication, prayers, and intercession, three different types of prayer, and give, giving of thanks be made for all men. We are to pray for everyone. For the king's and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable 
Very interesting verb that he used, uh, words that he uses there. Show, look back at 12, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. In the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the perspective of prayer in the early church. It was never the last option. It was always the first go-to. They were persecuted, they prayed. They had victory, they praised. When they are in need, they prayed. That's the prayer life that God wants us to have. Prayer should be as natural to the believer as breathing, as one wrote. And then lastly, as he closes his book, he says, Brethren, if anyone of, among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. How could one know that they were truly saved? The answer to that, I believe, stems from John chapter 15, Gospel of John chapter 15, where Jesus talked about the concept of abiding. It means to continue with, to walk alongside, and talked about that those who do not abide shall be cut off. Now, what is he saying here? He is saying, that one who is truly saved will continue with the Lord. And I believe that this is uh, absolutely consistent with the rest of Scripture. That this is absolutely consistent with the rest of Scripture. Now, the continuing doesn't save you. The continuing is evidence that you are. Okay? It's evidence that you are. Let me give you an example, if I may. John said it this way, and this is a longer discussion for another day, talking about the concept of apostasy and therefore asking the question of were they saved originally or were they not saved originally? I believe that they're discontinuing in the faith was evidence that they never truly were. And some would debate me on that, and that's fine. This has been debated for 2,000 years. Others believe that they started with the Lord and then lost their salvation. And I have many questions along that, those lines. For example, what constitutes the losing of one's salvation? Well, they're discontinuing. Okay, I agree, discontinuing is concerning, but does it automatically indicate that they lost their salvation? Let me show you a couple of verses that I want you to keep in mind in this conversation. 1 John 2.19, where John specifically talks about this concept. Notice what John says in 1 John 2.19. Now, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And in the Greek, it's in the tense, they were never of us. That's what he's saying here. I believe, again, 
The author of 1 John is the same author of John 15. And this is their explanation expounding upon the concept of abiding with Christ. Now Jesus said something in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 that also needs to be considered. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not enough just to say that we are a Christian. It must be manifested in our life. Again, let me say, we are not saved by our works, but our works indicate that we are truly saved. Okay? Then he goes on, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I what? What? Never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. It's not that I had it and it departed. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, the individual here, I believe, is certainly a brother in the Lord who is erred from the truth that we are then commissioned to turn back to the Lord if possible knowing that he will be saved from the complications of the sin that he will enter into and will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, I also hold to the fact that they, when writing this, believed that continuing with the Lord was evidence of their salvation in the Lord. So, interesting things to consider. I think we must be very careful today. When we read polling in America, it can be very deceiving, can't it? Especially when it comes to politics. X amount of number of people identify themselves as Christians. Oh, well, that's reassuring, isn't it? And yet, they act in the complete opposite manner of one who is truly saved. And I think what we are seeing here is we're starting to see where individuals are Christians by name only. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Our Christian life must govern and navigate us through this world. It must impact every aspect of our life, including the decisions that we make the things that we support, the activities that we engage in, the side we come down upon, it must coincide with Scripture in every case. Because we are governed first and foremost by the kingdom of God. For God is our Lord and Savior, our Regent, our Sovereign, our King. And though we act and live and dwell within this world, our first and foremost allegiance is to our Lord in all things. And the church said, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we've glorified you. 
that we handled it properly in all areas and aspects, and that, Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you have given us through the 66 books of the Bible. Help us to faithfully live. Guide us and lead us by your Spirit. Empower us by him in all things. Help us to stand in these last days. We thank you for the book of James and the maturity that it provokes within us, the thought that it uh, reminds us of. And we pray, Lord, that we would honor you with all of our life. Help us in our prayer, Lord, and our prayer lives as Christians. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.